Father, you are King of Kings, and you are worthy of our worship. Lord, we long for your glory to be reflected in our lives so that people can see how incredibly good you are. Father, I pray that you would draw us closer to you as we dive into your word together, that our hearts would throb with a longing to know you more. This can only take place through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we give you full permission, Father. Take over through your word. Take over my lips, Father. Take over our hearts. Speak to us this morning in a way that we never forget. Thank you, Father. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. William was awakened in the middle of the night to a pounding at the door of his house. He lived in the United Kingdom and didn't know exactly what was going on, but suddenly the messengers, they opened the door. They said, you and your family need to get out of the country. You see, his father, it was the late 1700s, and his father had been supporting America. And this was not a good thing for England. And so they told them that you need to get out of here. You need to get on the soonest boat and head to America. So they hopped on a boat. They sailed across to Baltimore uh, and William joined his father in Baltimore in starting a soap business. Well, after two years of starting the soap business, it didn't go so well for William's dad or his partner. And his dad decided he was going to go back to farming like he had done in England. But William had a passion for soap making. And so a year later, he started his own soap company. At 19 years of age, he started to make soap for himself. That didn't go so well. It lasted about a year, and that business caved in. His family had since moved to New York City. And as he was on his way to New York City, he was riding on this canal boat, and he made friends with the captain of this canal boat. And the the captain, he began to share with him his dream to be a soap maker, to have a soap-making business. And as he shared this with him, the captain looked at him, and he said words that he would never forget. This is a picture here of William later on in life. He said, someone will soon be leading the soap making work in New York. Some, someone will soon be the leading soap maker in New York. You can be that person, but you must never lose sight of the fact that the soap you make has been given to you by God. Profound words from this captain of the canal boat. He said, you could, you could make soap. You could be a great man. You could have a great business. But never forget that that soap that you make was given to you by God. A man said something very similar to Abraham. In fact, I'd like you just to stand with me as we say this blessing that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 19. Just repeat it with me because it's such a, a powerful blessing. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But notice the similarities of, of the recognition of God being the one who gives the gifts of, of everything that we have. You ready? Start now. Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. One more. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You can go ahead and sit down. Blessed be God who's the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered the enemies into your hand. Abraham, everything that has just happened is a result of the almighty most high God. 
Is that the way that I look at every aspect of my life? Is that the way that I see the successes of my life? Do I recognize where they come from? We've been looking at the three angels' messages in in Revelation chapter 14, and we've been comparing them to the life of Abraham. If you haven't noticed that so far, that's what we've been doing over the past two weeks. This week, we continue with that. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, we saw two weeks ago. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, the everlasting good news. The same promise and good news that was given to Abraham of the promise that Jesus would make him a blessing to the nations. We have that same message to give to the world, the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And then this message comes, and we looked at the first part last week, saying with a loud voice, fear God. And last week we talked about it, that's everlasting good news? Who wants this shouted? Who wants to say, fear God, how is that good news? Well, if you missed last week's sermon, you can go and listen to it online. But just a a summary of, of really what it means to fear God is to fear not being in his sheltering arms. To fear to run from God. To fear to, to not believe in His steadfast love in your life. To fear to, to not believe that He can accomplish what He has promised to you. That's what it means to fear God. To be afraid to not have Jesus with you. That's the fear of God that we need in our lives. But it goes on to say this. Fear God and what's the next line? Give glory to Him. How do we do that and why is it important? We're going to look at one aspect of a way to give glory and maybe a couple aspects of how to give glory to God today. And then he gives a reason for why we need to give glory, why we need to fear God, because the hour of his judgment has come. This is a crucial time that we're living in. And worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So let's jump back into the story that leads us to this place of worship where this... uh, person appears to Abraham and says this amazing blessing to him. We're going to go back up a little bit. You remember that we talked about last week how Abraham uh, and Lot, they're having a little bit of division. They're having a little bit of strife between them because they have become wealthy coming out of Egypt. They've got tons of silver and gold, it tells us, which gold only in this time period, some believe, came from Egypt. They've got lots of herds and and flocks and and these are creating strife because there's not a lot of pasturage in this part of the land of Canaan. And so Abraham says to the younger nephew Lot says, "Hey, let's not have strife between us. Let's not let's not have this going on between us. Here's the deal. You look where you want to go. You choose that land and I will go the opposite direction of where you go." This amazing thing for the, the leader to, to, to humbly offer Lot his pick of the land. Well, and we saw in Genesis 13 verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of God. It was like the garden of Eden. It was so beautiful that he, he looked at it and said, This must be what the, land, the garden of Eden was like like the land of Egypt, which they had just come from, as you go toward Zoar. Verse 11 continues. It says, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. You notice what it says there? And Lot chose for who? Himself. 
Do you see something that's going on here? He's making a choice for himself, for his selfish interest. He's choosing. And honestly, isn't that the way that we make a lot of the choices in our lives? We, we choose for ourselves. We choose, well, this will be the best house. This will be the best career. This will be the, the, the best thing for my family. And we choose for ourselves. But remember, Lot has joined Abraham in being called out of Babylon. Babylon was that place where they built a tower. They built a city to make a name for themselves so that they could have pride themselves. And then also so that they could work out their own salvation. So they'd have a place to escape if God were to send another flood. They've been called out of that. But sometimes Babylon can still be in our heart even if we're not physically living in Babylon. And you begin to see this in Lot's heart because it says Lot chose for himself the very best of the land. He's looking and he's saying, this is the best and I want what's best for me. And he chooses that area. Verse 12 continues, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. And we've seen how time and time again, cities in Genesis are never a good thing. So far, there's not been one positive mention of a city in the book of Genesis. And so Lot, again, is dwelling in the cities of the plain and he pitches his tent even as far as Moses says, Sodom. Then verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. He's choosing to to dwell in what looks really beautiful, not recognizing the consequences of that choice, not recognizing how hard that will really be. When we are blinded by our selfish interests and make choices according to what we think is best for us, we make really bad choices. That's what Lot did, and it's evident as we continue reading the story. Verse 14, though, tells us what happens with Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now. Do you see how it is? Lot lifts his eyes up and he says, ah, I want that. Then God comes to Abraham. He says, now I want you to lift up your eyes. And and now look around from the place where you are. Look every single direction. In verse 15, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. God shows up again to promise to Abraham that, hey, this is a beautiful thing you've just done. You let Lot have the best of the land, but here's what I promise you. In the end, it's all going to be yours and your descendants. So Abraham moves his tent and he went and he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And notice what he does again. He builds another altar to the Lord. Do you see the contrast in the lives of Lot and Abraham? Lot is living for himself. Lot, there's no mention of God directing him. But Abraham, he builds an altar. He, he, he selflessly gives. He allows. And, and you see that he has learned a lesson from Egypt. His lie in Egypt where he's fearing people rather than fearing God. He's beginning to learn to, to rely upon God and worshiping God. Well, as we continue the story, it turns ugly really fast. And just the first line of the next chapter says this, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of... What does it say? Where was Shinar? Okay. That's okay. We've only been talking about Babylon for three, or three weeks now. <laughs> right? So you remember that... Where did they go to build the Tower of Babel? It was in the plain of 
Shinar. So sometimes when we read these things, we skim over it like, okay, I have no idea what that name means. I have no idea why they're talking about that. But here it highlights, first of all, it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, king of Babylon. This is the king that's highlighted. Even though as we go through this war, it's not Amraphel who's the leader of these other kings, but it first mentions the king of Babylon is coming on a mission. It says, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eliezer, Shedelamir, king of Elam, and title king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Beersha, king of Gomorrah. Just a little side note. Bera means son of evil. That's the king of Sodom's name. Beersha means son of wickedness. That's the, the names of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma, Shimabar, king of Zobim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So basically you have four kings who are coming to make war with these five kings. And all these join together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. The coming verses summarize to us why this is happening. It's because Chedera is a really hard name to say anyway. That lead king is the one who had come and con- had had gained conquest over these cities, and he had been collecting tribute, basically, for 12 years. At the end of 12 years, they rebelled. They stopped paying the tribute. They stopped paying their taxes to these kings over in Mesopotamia. They're like, we're done with this. So one year passes, and then these five kings come, and they begin to make war on the areas that have rebelled. And finally, they come to these Sorry, the four kings. And these four kings come finally to the land of Canaan to make war against the five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we read about this war in verse 10. It says, now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. It's a pretty amazing thing because the Dead Sea, actually, there's parts on the, the southern end of the Dead Sea where asphalt will actually float up. So we believe that, that that part of the sea may have been actually where the Valley of Siddim was. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fled, fell there, and the remainder fled into the mountains. So it doesn't go so well for Sodom and Gomorrah. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And verse 12 says, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Lot is now a captive of Babylon. Lot has been recaptured by Babylon because of his choices to put covetousness, to put his selfish interest, to to seek for wealth and a life of ease. Lot has become the captive of Babylon once again. If I'm Abraham, at this point, I would be looking and saying, man, that's really sad what happened to Lot, isn't it? And I'd be telling my neighbors, you know, you know, Lot made that really bad choice and we need to pray for Lot. This is, this is a bad thing that happened to him. And, but look at how Abraham responds. First, let's look at what Jesus says about this. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. Now, this is talking even later on about what happens directly with Lot's wife. But I think he could have said, remember Lot and his bad choices too. Because verse 34 goes on to say, 33 says this, Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. 
It looked like Abraham was giving up what was the best possible thing. And it looked like Lot was gaining the best. He was gaining stuff for his life. But in the end, Lot was losing his life and Abraham was gaining his life. It's pretty fascinating what it says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 259. It says, to live for self is to perish. Covetousness, the desire for benefit for self's sake, cuts the soul off from life. It is the spirit of Satan to get, to draw, to self. Then it goes on to say this. It is the spirit of Christ to give to others, to give, to self-sacrifice self for the good of others. This is what the great controversy is all about. It's about self or giving. It's about living for ourselves or living to benefit other people. That is what we see as the picture of this war that has been happening throughout history. And that is what has happened to Lot. He's now a captive of Babylon. There was this fascinating study that was done by Harvard University, the Harvard Grant Study. They wanted to find out the source and meaning of happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. So they said, what we really need to do is to study how is happiness attained. So they followed, I believe it was 268 men. They followed them for 75 years. And they spent $20 million on this study to find out what is it that is the secret, the source, the meaning of happiness. Well, the leader of that study, a guy by the name of George Valiant, says this. The 75 years and $20 million expended in the grant study points to a straightforward five-word conclusion. Happiness is love. Full stop. Friends, love is the only commodity that is worth having in life. It's the only infinite commodity, the one that will continue to give and to grow. And it may seem like you're losing something by sacrificially loving somebody, but in the end, love is the only way to happiness. Love is the only thing that really matters. And God is love. Lot was interested in what he could get. Abraham was interested in who he could be with. He wanted to be with God. He loved God. In the end, this comes down to be very crucial for those of us who are called out of Babylon. The chapter before Revelation 14, summarizing what happens with this, this power, this beast power in the end, it says that in the end, they're going to lead people to worship the beast and to receive a mark. And then verse 17 says this, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or name of the beast Or the number of his name. In the end, it's going to come down to a pressure of whether we're wanting to buy or sell, wanting to profit economically, whether we want what this world has to offer, or whether we want Jesus. It's that plain and simple. It's going to boil down to that. Do you want Jesus? Are you willing, like, Kathy shared in the children's story today to, to listen to his instructions, to follow the way that, that he knows for you to go? Or do you want what this world has to offer? Lot chose what he saw looked good to him, what, what looked like the best choice he wanted to get. Now, this isn't saying that, that wealth in and of itself is necessarily a bad thing, because for Abraham... He was given wealth by God. He became a very wealthy man, and he used it to be a blessing to others. 
But if that wealth is not used for self-sacrificial love, it's really worthless and it's really a dead weight. And in the end, it can tear us down rather than being all that we're longing for. You see that later on with Babylon in Revelation 18 verse 2. This angel comes with a loud cry and he cries mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Become the dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and cage of every clean and unclean and hated bird. Then verse 3, notice this. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. There's an enticingness about Babylon. There's a, a, a desire for selfish gain, a desire to amass to ourselves. And this, in the end, whether or not we're still physically in Babylon, we can still have Babylon in our heart. If that is our focus, if that's all that matters to us, we're going to end up like lots. But today, God wants to satisfy the desires of your heart. He wants to be all that you are longing for. And we're going to find that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him and what He is to you. Verse 14 continues, And I heard another voice saying from heaven, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her place. Come out of the system. Come out of this covetous focus on self. This will cause ruin in the end. And this, when, when you look at Babylon and you realize there's a false worship system there, there's, there's a day of worship involved, all of that is important, but there's an underlying importance to recognizing whether or not we're living for self. Because otherwise, we're going to end up going with worshiping according to the beast's mandates rather than worshiping according to the Creator God who's given us this beautiful gift of the seventh-day Sabbath. Revelation four, uh, Genesis 14 continues and says this, Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So here's a question. Why 318 servants? Why is it so specific? Have you noticed that a lot of times in the Bible, it'll summarize, it'll say, 300 or 400, maybe even 320, but rarely does it say 318. I don't have the answer here, but I recently heard somebody suggest that that this probably indicates Abraham is sending all the trained servants that he has. 318. He's sending every last able-bodied trained servant in war. He's sending them all on this mission. And he goes on pursuit to rescue Lot from the Babylonian king and the other kings. Now that's an crazy, a crazy amount of love that Abraham had. He's like, let's go after my brother who's been captured. Though he's his nephew, he treats him like his close friend. Though he has, has chosen the best over Abraham. Though he's mistreated Abraham, Abraham is willing to sacrifice his best army to go out and to rescue Lot. It is the Spirit of Christ to give, to sacrifice self for the good of others. Abraham is the father of faith. He knew Jesus, and Jesus was living out that self-sacrificing love in him. This actually, you notice how it says that he pursued him all the way to Dan. Now, Dan is actually 
called Laish around that time, and later on it became known as Dan. This is in the northernmost part of Israel. And they've actually done excavations of Dan and then Laish, which is under it, the layers under it. And they found this gate, this gate that is almost 4,000 years old. It's one of the best preserved arched gates that is this old. And they dig it up and you can see there this gate. I actually got to go and see it myself just last summer and I was pretty excited about it. I was excited about it, not just because this is a really, really old gate, but because it tells us that Abraham went all the way to Dan in pursuit after the, those who had captured Lot. So it's likely that he, when he passed by Dan, that he would have actually walked through the gates. This very gate right here, maybe even, well, those stairs are probably added in, but that very gate, Abraham likely walked through. I thought that was pretty amazing to think about, just to imagine this father of faith, that, that there is such a real and rich history there, that we've found evidence for, for many things uh, from that time period. Well, verse 15 says, he divided his forces against them by night, and he is, his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. They're not letting up. They're going all the way. They're doing whatever it takes to rescue Lot, his brother. Verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Verse 15, 17 continues, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedelarmer and the kings who were with him. So the king of Sodom, he comes out to meet Abraham. Abraham has just rescued his entire uh, possessions, all of his people from uh, this onslaught that came from the king of Babylon and his cohorts. And this, this, this begins to set up an expectation. What's going to happen as the king comes out? Normally, whoever goes in and defeats the, the enemy is the one who gets all of the possessions, all of the people, all of that would now be his. So Abraham has right to all of the spoil. Naturally, he can take it all to himself. So it sets it up that the Sodom, the, the, this defeated king, is coming out to see Abraham. And then suddenly it interjects. And somebody steps in, kind of like the boat captain in William's life. Somebody steps in that is this phenomenal figure that, that we get a couple of verses in the book of Genesis about and then nothing else. Until Psalms where it says tells us a little bit. And then suddenly, when it comes to the New Testament, there's, he's the only character where you find way more about him in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. We stop right there because Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. Now, righteousness is likeness to God, holiness, which God is love. It's a beautiful name to what you're going to be a king of. His name is King of Righteousness. But he's also the king of, what does it say? King of Salem. Do you, you know where Salem was? Well, this is before Jerusalem was named Jerusalem. Salem was actually the place where Jerusalem was later founded. So you have Melchizedek coming out of Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem, which means both king of righteousness and Salem means peace. He's the king of peace. So he's a king. And then he brings out to them bread and wine. 
Okay, so he brings, and the word for wine there is used about half the time for uh, uh, fermented wine and about half the time for unfermented wine. But when it's in a religious context like this, it's usually always used for unfermented wine. So he brings out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. This is an incredible thing because you don't find once the Levitical priesthood is set up that you ever have a king who could also be priest. Do you remember when King Saul goes and tries to offer the sacrifice? It was bad news. It was, he was not supposed to be doing that. But the psalmist tells us that, that God has sworn that he would send somebody to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's only one other priest and king in all the Bible, and that is Jesus. <laughs> That's what Paul's point is in Hebrews chapter 7. We don't have time to dive into Hebrews 7 together, but go and read Hebrews chapter 7. What chapter? Hebrews chapter 7. Read that later on because it tells us about Melchizedek and how he represents what Christ is to us. And it says, how great is this man that, that Abraham was blessed by. Obviously, he must be the greater person even than Abraham. So he brings out bread and wine, and we don't know exactly what this means. But based on later times in Scripture, it's possible that this was some sort of a covenant going on. This is some sort of a a religious thing happening, especially because of what he goes on to say. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, let's read it together again, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. When it says possessor of heaven and earth, that's a merism in Hebrew, which basically means you take one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum, and you just use two words to describe everything. God is the possessor of absolutely everything. He's saying he's God most high. This is the only time uh, in these verses is where El Elyon is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. He's God Elyon, God Most High, and He owns absolutely, He possesses absolutely everything. So here Abraham is, and in this moment, He's got all these possessions, He's got all this spoil, He's got all of this from His conquest. And this guy who represents who Jesus really is to us steps in and says, Hang on a second. I'm going to bless you. Blessed be, I'm going to refresh you with the bread and the, the wine. And then blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And then he goes on to bless him this way. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Abraham, all of this is from God. That conquest was because of God. And friends, it's the same with your job, with your career, with your house, whatever thing in your life has been successful. If there's any good coming out of it, it's because the possessor of all things has allowed you this incredible blessing in your life. And then, verse 19 continues, and then Abraham decides that in this moment of blessing that he is going to give glory to God. We're living in a time when we need to fear God and give Him glory. And Abraham being blessed and being reminded that God is possessor of heaven and earth He goes ahead in verse 20 and does this. And he gave him a tithe of all. He gives him one-tenth of all the spoil of everything that he's been given. He gives it over to Melchizedek, this king of righteousness who really represents who Jesus is to us. He takes and he returns tithes to him. Sometimes people believe that returning a tithe 
begins with Moses and with the Levitical laws. But you can trace it back beyond that. You see it here in Genesis with, uh, with Abraham. You also see it, we believe, with Job. You see it with Jacob. You see that tithe is a principle of giving glory to God who's the possessor of everything. Because ultimately, it's His anyway. Malachi chapter 3 says it this way. You know, He's the possessor of all things. And, and Malachi says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But how have you done this? In what way have you robbed me? In tithes and offerings. Verse 10 continues and it says this, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And then look at what it says. It says, you've robbed God by, by taking of what is his and it wasn't yours to begin with. That one-tenth portion is, it's God's to begin with. It's not yours. But then it goes on to say this, test me now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room to receive it. God doesn't normally tell us to test him. But this is an area where he says, look, I know that, that it's difficult not to cling to stuff. And so I want you, I want to help you in clinging to me. And so I'm going to make you a promise. Just try me out in this. Just return at least a tenth and see what happens if I won't open to you the windows of heaven. I've been amazed in my own life to see how incredibly true this is. God is faithful and He longs to bless us and He wants us to have the experience of being able to give to Him, the giver of all things. So I just encourage you this morning, if you haven't tried God out in this, try Him out. You might be surprised by what happens. In fact, William was. You remember how the, the, the boat captain told him, someone will soon be leading the soap, be the leading soap maker in New York. You can be that person, but you must never lose sight of the fact that the soap you make has been given to you by God. Then he goes on to say this, honor him by sharing what you earn. Share with others what you earn. Begin by tithing all that you receive. Start here, if you don't start anywhere else, in giving God for your, the, the glory for your soap business, start by returning at least a tenth. And then begin to share beyond that. Then it goes on to say, give your heart to Christ. Give God all that belongs to Him. Make an honest soap and give a full pound. Well, William took this to heart. He began to make soap, and first he was an apprentice, and he learned from that guy how not to make soap, and he learned from him how to be honest, because he wasn't honest, and he did learn what not to do. And a while later, he started his own business making soaps, and pretty soon he was doing starches and laundry soaps and all of these different things, and all along the way, he kept returning at first a tie. But little by little, he decided that wasn't enough. And you know, if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, you learn that the Israelites were expected to return at least 25% of their income. Not just 10%. That was just the tithe portion, but there was also another tithe, and there were offerings on top of that. And sometimes they gave a whole lot more than that. So he begins to return a little bit more. Pretty soon he's returning 20%. And then he decides, you know what, 20% is enough, he begins to do 30%. And by the end of his career as a soap maker, he was returning 50% of his income on a regular basis. 
And you might recognize William if I told you his last name, because his last name is Colgate. He's one of those Fortune 500 companies today, who was started back in, the, in, the, in 1806 by a, a guy who determined that he was going to be faithful to God. He was known as Deacon Colgate in his church. He was always inviting people over uh, for Bible studies, and he was, he was known as somebody who loved to follow Jesus. And God chose in his life to bless him abundantly and to bless many of us today. I'm thankful for, for what toothpaste does for me. Um, but don't miss the point. God is able to open the windows of heaven for you. We don't give for what we can get back. But God does promise that He will open the windows of heaven for you. That He will return to you. And right after this, we're gonna, we'll finish by looking at what the king of Sodom does. It says, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. He begs for just a little bit more. They've been spared, but now he says, well, well let me at least have the people. You can take all the goods. And Abraham has this choice at this point to take all the goods of Sodom, all the stuff that Lot left to go have. You saw how beautiful, how rich the valley was, and he wanted that stuff. And Abraham is given the option of taking it for himself. But Abraham responds in verse 22, But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Where did he get that from? It's from Melchizedek, who had blessed him, saying, hey, it's the maker of heaven, the, the one who possesses all things, the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. I've raised my hand to him that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal shop. I won't even take the smallest of things from you, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. He didn't want for his heart to be caught up in that stuff. He wanted to, to rely upon God and not upon Sodom. And as we follow the story in Genesis, this is pretty crucial that he had recognized that he didn't want anything to tie him to Sodom. He didn't want anything to tie him to the wickedness that was going on in Sodom. And this morning, I just want to ask a simple question. Is there stuff tying you to anything but Jesus? Are you hanging on to anything but Jesus? Because the world is becoming more and more selfish, more and more grasping for stuff. And all of that is going to be an entanglement in the end. Because the only thing that matters is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And here's the thing. If you're struggling with that in any way today, here is the solution to it. Uh, Verse 1, continuing on in the story of chapter 15, says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. It's not about the stuff that God can give us. It's about the fact that God has given himself to us. In Jesus, we have the God of the universe in human flesh who has promised us life. And Hebrews, picking up this theme, chapter 13, verse 5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Don't, don't behave like that. Don't, don't cling to this world. Don't cling to that stuff. And then he gives us the solution. Be content with such things as you have. How? I'm not content. I want the latest iPhone. I want the latest computer. I want the bigger car. I want all this stuff. How do we be content? For he himself has said, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, love is the only place that you can find happiness. Jesus is the only truly loving being. The only one that you can cling to. And it's that relationship with Jesus, that focusing on Jesus, that will enable you to stand when the rest of the world is running after Babylon. What an incredible thing we get to invite people to, isn't it? We want to invite you into a loving relationship with the God of the universe to experience his blessing as he delights your life and he promises you, I will never leave you or forsake you. If only we would recognize his promise and presence in our life, we would be satisfied to the place where we'd be ready to give all. And in the end, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's the picture that we get from the story of Abraham and Lot. And that's the picture that Paul represents to us as he says, don't be covetous, be content. How? Remember the promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Remember the promise that's given to you through Abraham. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. And in you, all the nations will be blessed. Remember who you're going with and you don't have to worry about what you have. Would you just bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we're in awe of you, the King of Kings. We're longing to truly worship you. We're longing not to be distracted by anything but that relationship with you. And it may be that you you bless us in our lives with wealth like you did for Abraham, or it may not be. But God, I just ask right now, that day by day we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would cling to Jesus, that we would cling to your promises, that we would know that you are the God who will never leave us and never forsake us, that like Abraham, we'd set up altars, we'd worship you, and that we would gladly give anything to anyone who asks, because we have all we need. We have Jesus. And Father, I... I just pray that each of us would take the time to get to know you as that loving, faithful friend. Help us to experience that more consistently and constantly. Wake us up each day to be satisfied with your steadfast love so that we can be glad and rejoice all our days. Father, may we be satisfied in you so that you can be glorified in us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.